0: I'm Leopoldino Geronimo, and we, we're here just thinking through, right, as uh, global citizens, uh, personally attending to the conflict, directly or indirectly. Uh, we will be hearing guests in the room, and then we have also guests and friends um, online on Twitter. Feel free when you, when you have something to say on Twitter, just uh, unmute yourself. Uh, we'll, we'll try to run the, the logistics in and, and have your say. Uh, but we do have Elizabeth, who will be uh, co-hosting from uh, the online uh, team. We'll start with Anastasia. So please, you'll be introducing yourself and what's your connection to the conflict so that we, we know who is in the room. And then we'll move on to Taylor and, and Raya.
1: Thank you, Leo. Thank you, everyone. My name is Anastasia Banikova. I am a Russian, Ukrainian, American Who served in Peace Corps Ukraine in 2018-2019. So I have a whole bunch of reasons to (laughs) kind of get my voice heard. It's mostly going to be from the cultural and historical perspective. I'm not in no shape or form an economist or a politologist, but I am passionate about the history of Ukraine and Russia, as well as Kazakhstan, where I grew up. Uh, And so I'll be speaking from that perspective.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Tyler Rossi. Um, I am a student here at Heller, and I did Peace Corps in the Republic of North Macedonia. Um, So my expertise is mainly in the Balkans, so slightly tangential, but um, I do study the, the the historical side of this whole conflict, so mainly up till the fall of the Soviet Union. So I can, I'm going to be able to provide some historical context to everything.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Ria Yasmin Akar, and I study at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management as well. Um, I'm originally from Istanbul, Turkey, and uh, I'm also excited to be here. And thank you, Leo, for having me here.
0: So, the first question that we want to tackle in is what is this conflict really about? Because different people from different angles, we do have different perspectives. And, and some of us just came across to this, um, the, the history of both countries very recently. And we lack the, the background to know why is this happening? I mean, it's Europe. Uh, that's what what that's has what been debated out there it's almost a taboo to hear about the conflict in Europe. And and then there are even stereotypes trying to channel the recurrence of conflicts elsewhere, like in African Middle East. But what is this conflict really about?
1: Well, um, (laughs) I'll start. In my mind, and please, you know, back me up or contradict me if you have, you know, another uh, facts or evidence against that, I think the war is happening because of Putin's desire to restore, all basically, the old, good old Soviet Union. It's basically this kind of restart of the Cold War that is turning into a hot war, as we speak. It's, it's actively happening, and Ukraine is in this axis, or it's in the middle of it all. It's been crucial in the history of the Soviet Union. It's been crucial in the history of European Union and NATO expansion. So that's basically why Ukraine is such a important and currently uh, suffering side of, of it all. Um, I'm not Putin's psychologist. I don't know what's happening in his head. But basically, based on what I saw, heard, read, it's he claims Ukraine to be Russia, part of Russia. He claims Ukrainian people do not have statehood. He claims that Ukrainians, Ukrainian language doesn't exist, that it's, it's just a dialect of Russian, and that Ukrainians have been oppressed by um, the internal Nazi regime and they need to be liberated. So that's his uh, sort of reasoning of why he's doing that, but he just overall wants to kind of recapture Ukraine before it becomes part of the EU and or NATO? Um,
2: So I I think that's definitely one of the layers. Um, I think that this is a multi- leveled uh conflict or the the reasoning behind it so that is definitely one of that because if you look at where he uh came from when he came from specifically he was growing up in the 70s and 80s when uh russia was undergoing or forcing through the second wave of russification in ukraine um when uh in in the late seven early 70s kind of area um but the other one is uh the old standby of oil and natural gas. Um, uh, I'm not sure if, if you guys know this, but um, on the southern coast of Ukraine um, and in the Black Sea, that northern bulge in between Crimea and um, Romania, is was recently discovered one of the world's largest deposits of natural gas um, and oil. And so by claiming the coastline... Um, which is where a lot of the heavy fighting is right now outside of Kyiv, um, Russia can then claim that oil as theirs. Um, so that, that's the second major level, um, in my opinion. And then the third one is um, after being in power for so long, uh, he, I, I think Putin was looking at the situation and there, there was definitely a need to, to have some external enemy. To um, basically pin everyone's focus on, so that he could re- retain power. So there is the, the the desire for a greater Russia. There is the oil, and then there is this um, there is this internal struggle within Russia of I need to keep my power, or or something will happen to, to him personally. So,
3: well, in my opinion, there's two other layers as well. Until 2014, actually, Kiev was the eighth largest arms exporter of the world. And um, also, Ukraine has a lot of lithium wealth, which is crucial for um, the world's new batteries and world's transition to clean energy. And this was found last year. Ah. And there's two companies that are actually wanted to invest before all of this war going on and the COVID-19 pandemic, it was China and Austria. And there's around Mm -hmm. 500,000 tons of lithium oxide, which would make Ukraine also one of the leaders of lithium. And currently, China is the leader. So there's a lot of energy resources going on as
0: well. Well, I think we are now uh, we are getting there uh, indirectly to the interests, what are the interests around it. But as much as um, I perceive that there are historic, um, ethnic, and then uh, economic layers, but the geopolitics of it make the, um, the, the conflict itself even a bit more complex. So what are the the actors involved in it? And what role do they play individually? You've just started, um, Ruya. so if you want to get into details of that.
3: Uh, Yeah, so um, there are many actors involved in this, uh, like NATO, as you said, Anastasia, the EU, Um, in my opinion. Well, usually China doesn't get involved. So China isn't saying it's an invasion. It's a situation. Yes, but also Ukraine is a Belt and Road uh, country and uh, this is obviously going to cause some economic harm and many countries are sanctioning right now Russia. Um, However, other countries have, many countries and I guess all of the countries have not stopped sanctioning oil. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I would add that uh, the states that um, kind of used to be making Soviet Union that are either in EU, like the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Belarus, who is blatantly an ally of Russia, um, and, uh, and as well as Kazakhstan, where I'm from, um, which is, has the biggest border, one of the largest borders with Russia. Uh, and who's also kind of right between Russia and China, right between those two Super virus Moldova, that is currently accepting refugees from the southern part of Ukraine. Those are basically, like I said, former Soviet states that have a big, um, not well, interest concern. Concern that are they going to be next? Um, Belarus is already part of that, so they're not like have to worry about it. But uh, Moldova might as well be next because. The, the de facto Republic of Transnistria is there, that Putin mm-hmm. has always been claiming that our fellow Russians are there, they're suffering, we need to liberate them, quote-unquote. Um, ditto Kazakhstan that has a big, large, still fairly large Russian population in the, on the northern part with a border with Russia. Um, and then, of course, the Baltic states that are part of EU, so, I mean, by default, kind of like, which they don't have to worry about anything, um, if they have Baltic Sea access, and uh, there's have been some murmuring from Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, like Bel- that Belarus needs an access to Baltic Sea, which it doesn't now, but with Putin's help, who knows? So. The, these are major areas of concerns. And historically, Putin was claiming, as I mentioned before, to, to liberate Russian people, basically stating wherever Russian people are, we need to protect them, quote unquote. That's his rhetoric. That's his overall thing of this is why we are... You know, going to Ukraine to liberate our Russian brothers or Slavic brothers, Dnestr Transnistria in Moldova, uh, also historically he would say Adeska Oblast, Adeska region, which is also in the northern, uh, sorry, southern part, right next to uh, Black Sea, Mikolaevsky region where I used to work as a peace Corps volunteer. They have our fellow Russians that need to be quote unquote liberated. So of course that there's lots of stake there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a very Historically, common argument that 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 mm-hmm. occurred at the beginning of World War II um, and a bunch of other conflicts where it's our people over there, we need to protect them. But I think the um, we've talked a lot about state actors, and I just want to add one more. Is I was not surprised at all, but I saw yesterday Serbia is is now backing yes. Russia. Mm-hmm. That that's an old trope. Um, mm-hmm. But it um, but what I really wanted to talk about was all the um, the lower level actors. So all the um, the the impact that um, zelensky has had is was pleasantly surprising from the ukrainian side I, I think that there was there was a from what i can tell it it, it was a hope that he would do well but not very much belief mm-hmm. and then it turned mm-hmm. into he really oh, really my God. became yeah. um, he used his tv skills and his, his but but then not it's not just him it's the um, russian oligarchs it's the um, it's, it's the Russian soldiers who are. 17 18 years old 19 they were the vast majority of Russian soldiers were conscripted into that army mm-hmm. um, and then it's the the average uh, Ukrainian people um, the average population you're not gonna have nothing
1: average about them I think
2: <laughs> I, I, I agreed I, I meant more like just the 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 the, the standard population <laughs> yeah not the, the trained soldiers um, because uh, it, if there hadn't been it could have gone very different from the ver- from the from the outset if the uh, if the Ukrainian people didn't put up a, a stiff resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think
0: that's something to be really considered. Well I see you're nodding. Is yes. that provocative enough? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I'm very passionate about what's happening in Ukraine obviously, yes. Um, but I wanna add that and we've started talking about and I think I've started it like 50, 50, 10 minutes ago, mm-hmm. since <laughs> time's flying. Um, Ukraine has Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and, you know, Russians have Ukrainian relatives. we talked mm-hmm. about the air. Everyone knows somebody. It, it's not just an isolating, you know, uh, um. Ukrainians are just in Ukraine mm-hmm. type of thing, or uh, Russian is only spoken in Russia. Russian is spoken in Ukraine, Kharkiv, which is only mm-hmm. like 30 miles away from Russian border. Mm-hmm. There are lots of Russian-speaking people there. They, they they were cursing in Russian when they were being attacked. So, by claiming, again, by Putin's claim that we are liberating fellow mm-hmm. Russians, that's completely, you know, uh, false. And yes, historically the, the, a lot of dictators, Dictatorship 101, mm-hmm. yeah. they, they, they were using that idea or that thought of like uh, we are helping versus we are invading
2: well so that's a really that goes into what 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 makes you whatever culture you are is it your language Mm -hmm. is it where you live because like Mm -hmm. in macedonia there's a large albanian population and it's all about the language and the culture and the who you are where you're from but you can also be an albanian who is living in macedonia and you are a Macedonian citizen, but you are Albanian. So, But you don't want to go move to Albania. You want you are a Macedonian mm-hmm. citizen. And, yeah. and, and I think it's a similar thing similar, um, where yeah. you, you may be ethnically Russian, but you are Ukrainian. Correct, and, and, and vice versa. Exactly, and you don't want to necessarily peel off a slice of your country to, you <laughs> to, to you add on to, to Russia. Citizen.
1: Yes, and culturally... Um, you know, there are similarities, but also, of course, there's unique aspects of Ukrainian mm-hmm. uh, like a language that Putin claims there is no Ukrainian language or there is no Ukrainian state. Yeah. He claims that, but mm-hmm. it does exist. Oh, yeah. It, it, but because he at the same time says, well, uh, our fellow Russians are oppressed because they're forced to learn Ukrainian. B- b- so that by that phrase, he claims that there is a, a language. Well, mm. you know, five minutes before he would say there is no such thing as Ukrainian or Russian cultural languages. It's all one thing, one, you know, United Nation mm-hmm. that
0: needs to, you know, rescue. So, yeah. I'm glad we're we're getting there. So we we found an alternative to Elizabeth, are you are you there? Yes, hi. Okay, Um, please you can hear me? Yes. 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 Welcome. Okay, hi everyone. I'm so
4: sorry for the technical difficulty. Um I'm unable to excuse me, um unmute myself on the Twitter, so I'm just calling in.
1: Hi, Liz. Hi,
4: Anastasia <laughs> and I actually serve in the Peace Corps in Armenia.
1: We're multi. I'm multiple FD. offender. Oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, good to um, hear you.
4: <laughs> it's very good to hear you, and I'm I'm very happy to see you or hear you participating in this event. Um, thank you, Liam, for, for inviting me. Um, so my name is Elizabeth Morgan, and I have a master's degree in Russian studies from McGill University, and I'm currently um, doing my second master's at American University in international service with a focus in international um, negotiation and conflict resolution. Um, I, I just want to sort of get... Um, abreast of the, the, the current question because I was trying to reset my connection on Twitter, so I don't exactly know what, exa- what uh, question you're addressing at the moment. So, Leo, can you please um, reiterate sure. the
0: question? Sure. We, we were, um, after trying to capture what, what is this conflict really about, then we, mm-hmm. we are now discussing the actors involved and what role do they play. That was basically where we were getting into. Okay. Um, okay if i
4: answered the first question a little bit because i i understood you were sort of addressing like the the personality Putin's personality and rhetoric um and and and, um attempt to delegitimate um uh ukrainian you know identity as a as a war tactic or like a pre-war tactic um i i want to say that i i We we want answers um, such as questions to the origin of war, to be simple, but in fact we should honour the complexity of the human condition uh, which creates conflict. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of conflict itself um, because it's natural, because we are naturally diverse and diversity creates uh, conflict. But I think it's the inhumanity and um, specifically the willingness to destroy lives uh, because of these differences that we should question um, and focus on. And I think from the historical perspective, um, Russia and Ukraine as two like separate cultural identities have been distinct from the beginning. I mean, during the Russian empire, during the Soviet Union and and today. um, And that's obviously because of the different languages and different um, environment and cultural experiences. Ukraine has experienced many invasions, uh, the first most notable one being in 1240. Um, and so, so they have, they have had uh, moments in the, in, in, the, in the distant past and, and most recent past of this situation. Um, Ukraine has always been an ethnically diverse region, um, as well as ecologically diverse region, and therefore a very rich place. Um, obviously, it's by the sea, so that is another resource. And I, I I, think I've heard some of you talking about how Russia, and also now Belarus, is trying to grab hold of the riches that uh, are in Ukraine. Well, I think, as Anastasia would know, um, and, and other people who have specialized in Russian history, um, Ukraine was known as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union because of the rich... Resources um, and they actually supplied much of the food resources during the Soviet Union. Um, and when during the four, one of the four year plans um, fell through, the resources, the food that um, was in Ukraine was actually dispersed into Russia. Um, and this is one of the issues. Um, most most horrific uh, consequences of this was the uh famine, which um, just devastated the Ukrainian population. Um, it it killed millions of people. Um, and so that is a huge, huge loss and, and a sense of sort of disunity during the Soviet Union. Um, also during the Soviet era, Beria, one of the leaders, he was a very horrible person. Um, he ordered the uh, forced displacement of ethnic minorities in Ukraine, um, and this was not necessarily unique to to Ukraine. This actually happened in the other, uh, among other ethnic minorities in in Russian territory, like the current Russian territory, um, and also in the smaller republics uh, during the Soviet Union. So, so on many facets, Ukraine has been uh, a, a a target of um, very well systematic um, and intentional um, abuse, violence um, on the part of the the the, the leadership. Um, and one of one of the most notable populations that were targeted are the Ukrainian Tatars. Um these are people living in um, what is now Crimea and uh, which in itself has on and off been a, an autonomous region, and even during the Russian Empire, during the World War II, and then it, Soviet Union collapse, it was on and off an, an autonomous region, and it swapped hands. Um, it was occupied by the Nazis, and then Russia sort of acknowledged its, um, its connection to Ukraine and sort of um, allowed... Crimea to to be part of Ukraine um, when when Ukraine uh, what am I trying, um, declared independence from the Soviet Union. So 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 in itself, that that region is very contentious. So these Tatars were removed, force removed. Um, it was illegal for them to return home. They had been made stateless. And even after the Soviet Union tried to make reparations to the ethnic minorities across the former Soviet republics, um, they refused this particular ethnic group. Um, They banned them from re-entering Ukraine, um, and it was about some 200,000 people. Um, A lot of them died en route of the um, forced exile, and... When they were finally allowed to return, I can't remember the date, so I do apologize. But when they were finally allowed to return, they found that their inheritance was, much of their inheritance was lost. Um, Russian uh, leadership had come in and made much of their land into sanatoriums and, um, you know, summer houses for the leadership. And they just kind of uh, were unable to recuperate or recover from that terrible time. Um, so, so you have this this country uh, systematically targeted by various powers, um, foreign and domestic, uh, foreign and, and national, I should say. Um, and so there's a there's a, there's a historic sense of distrust of foreign leadership or any uh, anything other than what what uh, they can create themselves. Um, so the strive for independence has always been there for a very long time, um, but because of occupations, they have not been able to 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 acquire it. I would say the unique situation that they found themselves in in Maidan in 2014 was extremely motivating, and I think the reason why today they are not giving up their place, um, they are fighting so hard, um, and of course they're being backed with military, uh, strength by, by Europe and Turkey, uh, sorry, Europe, um, European powers, uh, is because of what happened after the Maidan conflict. These people lost many, many friends and family members, um, just totally unjustly. They were just being targeted and killed, um, by, you know, this civilian, uh, army of, you know, prisoners that were hired, to set chaos in Maidan. And and so there's like a, a, a deep, deep, deep distrust, um, especially because um, Yanukovych uh, promised them that he would bring Ukraine into the European uh, Union and therefore liberate them from what you can say that the yoke of, uh, you know, mis- misalignment By formally, you know, mistakenly trusting Russia uh, to be their friend, so so that's the Russian. Sorry, that's the Ukrainian issue, and I think that's a a very important thing to take into account when you have a sentimental uh, or historical cultural trauma uh, or traumatic memory, as it's called. You definitely are going to take that into account when you. before you are willing to, to put up arms against uh, the, the your opponent, so that is that is I would say the crux of the issue on the on the on the Ukrainian side, and of course on the Russian side, I think it's well beyond Putin. Um, <clears throat> for 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 over fifty years, we've seen you know this country, I should even say over a hundred years, we've seen this country try to. Um, match the Western powers um, in in the sense of its identity, um, trying to you know modernize uh, by the Western standard, trying to be recognized as a civilized country, a civilized people, um, but met with the attack that their language is harsh, their culture is cold and dark, you know, the land is bleak. Um, uh, they are barbaric, you know, because they are not European. Um, they are Slavs, which are not completely, you know, white Aryan. You know, they were, they were, um, uh, it, it just a slew of <clears throat> anti uh, anti white stigmas and and rhetoric about non white populations in Russia because, uh, again, Russia itself, the, the contemporary Russia, is home to a number of diverse, uh, sorry, ethnic minorities, uh, which have their own language. It's not just Russians in Russia. And, and so, so you have this like, clash, of th- this, this idea uh, on the part of the Russians that they will never match up to the West. And so at some point... I think in the most recent uh, past, Russia has come to just say that they don't care what the West thinks of them. And, and, and seeing and observing the West treat uh, or favor countries, regardless of their human rights records, regardless of their political orientation, let's say China and Turkey um, and Saudi Arabia. I mean, these are very contentious areas in this, in, in, uh, with regard to human rights. But the United States and the West have favored these countries for economic gains or territorial gains or territorial influence. Um, And so Russia sees that no matter what they try to do, you know, gravitate toward democracy, gravitate toward capitalism, they're never going to really be part of uh, the European or the Western clan. Um, And that is, I think... Magnified by the fact that they were never invited into the NATO uh, when the NATO was formed, I should I, I should say, not the NATO, but NATO, <laughs> um, it was never invited into NATO. And then, for some reason, you, Europe started to consider the small republics, the Baltic region, or states, uh, and now t- and Turkey and uh, Georgia and Ukraine. So. It is sort of an eyesore for them that why are these smaller countries um, who, you know, have had a deep uh, historical past with Russia, positive or negative aside, um, now being welcomed and identified as European, whereas the cultural similarity to Russia is a lot more strong than to, uh, to European nations. So I'm going to end there, and I would love to hear uh, your, your, your input
2: on, on what I've said. Um, where to start? <laughs> um, that was a very in-depth uh, and, and thorough description. Thank you very much for it. Um,
1: I have something to add. Okay, so I'm a fan. Um So I'm, I'm again, not a officially a, a scholar. I, I just uh, lo- love to read books about my culture and uh, anything that's related to that. So I'm a fan of Timothy Snyder, the historian. He wrote a, a great deal of books about Ukraine, Russia, and U.S. actually. There's the book The Road to Unfreedom, basically, is a great summary of what was happening in Russia, what rhetoric Putin has been using to kind of uh, enforce his agenda and kind of quote-unquote inspire or convince Russians that they're a special type of people, like Elizabeth was saying, uh, that, you know, forget the West. We are against the West. We are a counterweight of Western, um, as he said, decadent, immoral values. So in his, uh, in his mind, in Putin's mind, Russia was this pure, um, you know, Slav, Slavic state with uh, morals and while well, the immoral West with the LGBTQ plus ri- pride parades and, you know, other immoral ways of, you know, immigrants uh, flooding and, you know, uh, like mixing up with Europeans. So they, they, so they accuses West Europe, like, okay, you, you let this happen. We are still the pure Slavic state. So uh, Snyder... Always quotes every time he speaks somewhere, he always quotes that Putin's uh, like favorite ph- philosopher was Ilyin, who um, lived in Russia in the 1930s and I think immigrated to uh, Berlin and continued to write about Russia and uh, the plight of uh, the Bolshevik Revolution uh, and basically kind of agreeing with. Nazism, neo-Nazism, Hitler and Mussolini's fascism movement, basically, and so this is what's happening in Russia. It's it's literally a fascism. What they were doing to Crimea, uh, basically, they came and they say, okay. You are crying, you, you, and you're unhappy in Ukraine. We're going to give you food. We're going to give you infrastructure. We're going to give you this. We're going to give you that. Of course, people said, yes, please. Again, because of my connection with uh, my family, my family connections. I have family in Crimea. This is exactly what they said. They were they ethnic Ukrainians. They live in Crimea. And, that, and yet they said, they, they wrote in the referendum, we want to be part of Russia because of that. And, but I, of course, if you think, you know, bigger pictures, like this is just the, a bribe, so to speak, this is just something that people are promised in order to gain um, geopolitical power, you know, in order to uh, basically sc- screw them up later on, um, even though they did receive some of these um, concessions that they were promised. And, and so this, this situation in, in Ukraine, I mean, and historically in Crimea and LNR, DNR, this is what people were promised. And this is what Putin used as concessions to them. So again, very complex, multilayered. I mean, we can talk about four hours, but Timothy Snyder, please yeah. read to
2: I'll definitely look him up. Um, but I, I, your whole talk about, uh, concessions made me, remember what I wanted to bring up, Um, NATO expansion. uh, And one of the main reasons why it was expanding into Poland um, initially was because Clinton uh, saw that the Midwest states had a very large Polish population and he wanted their votes. And they wanted to get into the EU because they wanted to, to they're not one of the Slavic nations, so they wanted to kind of distance themselves from Russia, um, and so that was the initial phase of the aggressive eastward expansion of, of NATO, and um, and it just snowballed from there. And I think the the the, the Russian viewpoint uh, of 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 exceptionalism and the um, how they were. Seeing the the West slowly encroach on their on their quote unquote neutral buffer states um, that were never neutral to begin with, but that's a whole different discussion. Um, I I think that plays into it a lot.
3: Yeah, and Turkey was close to Soviet Union from the twenties to fifties, actually. And when the I guess with the Marshall Plan, uh, the expansion of NATO started in Turkey, which had many many like. how do you call called in English uh, military zones in Turkey, more than 10, uh, 10 to 15. And also, uh, the way that in 19, uh, NATO, sorry, Turkey became a NATO member in 1952, and it was because of the Korean War, actually. Turkey sent troops. So, um, and the reason, one of the reasons why Turkey went into NATO, actually, because the deal between Russia and Turkey ended. Sorry, Soviet Union and Turkey did. Uh, Soviet Union wanted to expand from the Black Sea and to the Bosphorus. So Turkey became defensive and then said, "Okay, okay, U.S., we're gonna, we're gonna join your club." And however, Turkey still hasn't gotten into the EU, and most likely will not.
2: Yeah, it's when, just one more thing, Leo. Um, when I was living in North Macedonia, they held the referendum for the name change um, mm-hmm. to become the North Republic of North Macedonia, which is not at all related to this. But what is is once they passed that, the first thing that they got was to join NATO. Um, and that was a big deal because the Balkans historically have not been... Uh, a, a sphere of the West, a, mm-hmm. except Greece. Um, and Russia has a lot of money in the Balkans right now. Um, and so it, it's an interesting dynamic that's similar.
3: So, can I ask a question? Of
0: course, of course.
3: Um, I'm just curious uh, to hear. So when, did, uh, when do you all think the expansion of NATO started in Ukraine actually? Like, did it start after the fall of the Soviet Union, which is 91, or the Uh, Because when a country wants to get into NATO, there has to be a lot of stuff that changes, including defense, military, and EU as well. If you want to get into the EU, a lot of stuff has to change. So when did the start in Ukraine? And why is, again, and then comes back to the question, what is Russia trying to do against this?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I think there was multiple phases. The first phase was Ukraine giving all its nuclear weapons back to Russia Mm -hmm. um, in exchange for never being attacked, which... Yeah. yeah, didn't happen.
1: Um, so, Elizabeth, you have
2: something to yeah, say? Yeah, Elizabeth probably knows better than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny because
4: um, I, for my for my master's degree in Russian study, I actually had done a research project on the difference in, in, in the um, the language used um, in the application for Turkey and Ukraine uh, for membership to. Uh, the European Union and NATO Um, and I found a very, I I can't exactly remember the year, I was just going to look it up online Um, but um, I know that around 2005, 2006 um, it was pretty apparent to Russia that the EU um, I should say the United States (laughs) by way of the European Union was not <clears throat> satisfied with um, the membership of the Baltic states being part of NATO and, and the European Union. I think they saw that you know the United States was still uh, doing a, a sort of um, containment strategy of, uh, of Russia and um, I, I think from the Russian perspective, it's be, the, the contention, the, the heightened conflict was because uh, and as, as the Russians said during the Soviet Union, you know they want their own backyard <clears throat> as the United States uh, has you know claimed of, of, of uh, American territory. They want it to be nobody else's business. Um, Russia wants at least a multi multipolar system, not one where America is the hegemony in the world order. Um, and it also doesn't see the the, uh, the West clan, the clan West um, versus everyone else, as a sustainable situation. And I think you can see this uh, in in action where the UN will take a vote, uh, make a resolution, and and Russia will almost always consistently veto, because that's the only way it is seen. I think Russia wants to be seen. Um, Russia does not want to be surrounded as it is by military bases. Um, you know, and, and the United States has done quite, a, quite an aggressive military strategy, um, um, and, and that's the unfortunate legacy, and I think that that, that is something we ought to acknowledge and take into account, um, as sort of um, heightening a sense of insecurity and mistrust on the part of the Russians toward Americans. I mean, just imagine if you had—we're we're living in a no quiet, like suburban neighborhood—and you see your neighbors arguing across the street, and you just like wave, and you're like, "Hey." What are they arguing about? You get into a conversation. They're like, "Oh yeah, well, you know, um, they want they want the alley behind your backyard." And you're like, "Wait, what? <laughs> why do you want why do you want this alley?" And they're like, "Oh well, you know, that's a that's a throughway for you know like black market trade. They want to they want to they want to check it out." Um, mind you, the black market trade here would be you know like Afghanistan <clears throat> during the Soviet Union. So you start to, to check out your backyard a little bit more, and then you see your neighbor who you just had a conversation with, and then the people who were fighting, joining arms in the you know alley with you know guns, and then giving you sly looks. I think that's kind of what Russia has felt um, during the Cold War, and I think you know when the conflict became so scary uh, at the point of when uh, the Soviets had you know put the 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 nuclear missile um, I'm sorry, I'm losing my uh, the term the, can someone help me the, the nuclear missile projector in Cuba? and they they were directing it toward the United States. and they said, finally, you know what it feels like to be pointed at. Um, and I think that's that's a very significant thing. They're saying like you know we're we're not comfortable with how much you have surrounded us effectively. And to an extent, set even the Chinese market um, against against them, uh, because you know, Russia is China's neighbor, um, but Russia now has. Sorry, yeah, Russia now has the shorter end of the rope.
2: So, um, and to go off of that, it's not even just external uh, projection. I, I have here. Um, a, a cover story from the Times Magazine from '96, uh, July edition, and it's yanked to the rescue. And it was an opening. It, it was in, and the, the photo is is a caricature of Boris Yeltsin. Um, and it's we openly rigged the Russian election for Yeltsin, um, and then we started. We bragged about it right after we did it. Um. <laughs> so, yeah. it's not only just external, like plopping our military bases around the U.S. Was actively engaging in. I,
0: yeah. Well, it's it's um it's it's a complex case. I would like to uh, invite you to now see the people in the ground, right? Because uh, we are discussing the the big fish, um <laughs> the, the whole political, the act, the main actors who are. Necessarily undermining the actual victims. How do we see this playing to the people on the ground? I'm referring to the implications. Um, these days we are discussing. I'm, I'm very curious to to read the reports of the um, U N. Migration Service this year. What will that say? I don't know, that the millions of people now, because we were always used to see the the migration um, reports in a different context. But not only the, uh, the, the conflict that is displacing people from one side to the other, but there are also people who are displaced, but they're still there. Like They have nowhere else to go, and some are even forbidden to leave. But uh, how do you make of it? So, Ukraine has a population of roughly, uh, slightly
2: over 44 million people. Um, the UNHCR estimates that at least 4 million refugees will be produced from this com- uh, conflict. So, 10 per… No, it's 1 million. It's 1.2 or yeah. something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's… Um, so, roughly 4 million external refugees. And I don't know the number that they're predicting internally, but I'm guessing it'll be about the same, um, if not more. Um, and. My, so that, that's, we saw this in the Balkans as well. Um, in, in Bosnia in, in 92 to 94, um, there was a massive exodus of, of, in Bosnia, a country of 4.8 million, uh, roughly 700,000 left. Um, Yeah, and, and the Syrian refugee crisis is the same thing. Um, and Syria is struggling from what I, the next part is, um no matter how this ends and when it ends just a sheer loss of infrastructure um i mean look at look at the carpet bombings the russian strategy has shifted from its previous strategy in crimea to its syrian strategy of just carpet bombing um or the equivalent with uh thermobaric weapons and other weapons that are not allowed by the geneva convention um but uh just the rebuilding effort is gonna be it's gonna be on the level of World War post-World War II rebuilding, which is gonna be really, really tough without massive external help. And that's what I'm really worried about.
1: I'm worried about the cultural implications again, that there's gonna be generations of people who will be going through this war, already going through this war, and basically one side being misinformed and being already told that the, the pe- people there are not people or that we're liberating them. And the other side, the Ukrainian side, is going to hate the Russian guts mm-hmm. for, for like basically just kind of like what Germans went through. Mm-hmm. Everybody hated Germans. Nobody trusted Germans. Uh, look at them now, actually. well, they c- It can turn around, but I'm just... I, I mean, obviously, it's a very emotional topic for me right now. I do have f- friends there, a family. Um, I don't know... I try well. I try not to um, bug them much, you know. On the, you know, Facebook, whatever. Oh, are you okay? Because it's just kind of like checking my sanity versus theirs. Mm-hmm. So I, I let them be. But this is my main concern. Of there's already hatred in 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 Ukrainian voices in their posts and in, in their basically a- anger at what is happening to them, and that is very worrying to me not because like oh yeah i'm russian i don't want like it's it, this type of hatred is just gonna over you know spill over and and make cont- that and that's why conflict may continue too
5: yeah.
2: i mean i'm jewish and my mm-hmm. i have family members who still will not even travel to germany
5: mm-hmm. which mm-hmm.
2: so i the, the lasting intergenerational trauma is going to be very extensive from this and you're right we are already seeing it in the posts which it's not unjustified in the moment but i have a i I, unfortunately i think it's not going to go away which is do you uh, all
3: think there's going to be spillover effects in like moldova romania poland or belarus like where people are going to feel disrupted and then there's going to be a hate mm-hmm. towards this uh, mm-hmm. other country.
2: There is multiple levels of that. There's yeah. one there's the refugees. Yes. Um and that's going to be oh, disrupting. Okay. I know again I'm an, a, I'm an expert in the Balkans so I always draw parallels. Kosovo, Macedonia, a bunch of Kosovar uh, refugees fled into into Macedonia and that was significantly disrupting. But so there'll be that. Um, and then the other one is a lot of the eastern um, Soviet republics, former Soviet republics like Georgia and Armenia and most of the Stans, is their economies are directly tied to Russia.
3: And Ukraine, um, as well, food, okay. agriculture. Co-
2: correct, but but Ukraine is is not quite as tied because their grain exports are for go to a lot of I forget the statistics, but it's something uh, like. <laughs> It's the Middle East and North Africa and East Africa, and it's 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 an obscene percentage of the world's grain comes from Ukraine. It's like ten mm-hmm. percent or something like that. Yeah,
3: Turkey gets um, around thirteen point four percent from yeah, Ukraine alone, yeah. and Russia sixty percent. So
2: Wait. so my so my point is, so they have a little bit more diversification. Mm-hmm. So as long as they can, as long as trade can reopen after the war, I think economically, some change may happen. But Georgia, Armenia, where. The vast plurality of their economy is tied directly to Russia. The sanctions will that the West will is will is and will continue to to levy on Russia. I think will just devastate the whole region. Unfortunately,
0: no. Yeah, go ahead. I wanna go ahead.
2: Add
4: something. Um. I, I feel like so. So I I would like to draw to um attention to two facts. First of all, this war, Russia, the Russo-Ukrainian war, has actually been going on since 2014, mm-hmm. and over 13,000 people have lost their lives mm-hmm. um, already mm-hmm. uh, in that particular war. So, um, so, so the loss is felt, and it has been felt, and people in Ukraine and Russia, particularly, particularly the southern part of Russia, have. Numbed themselves to the fact of war because they do not see any uh, potential end to this conflict because the root of the conflict is so deep and tied to the very unfortunate historical mm-hmm. cultural trauma and memory. Um, so that's the one fact I want to draw attention to as a part as in in terms of the spillover effect. Um, we need to. Uh stop conflating these uh, the different types and, and of effects that can take place. We need to recognize that Ukrainians are seen in a much different context than other refugees because of the color of their skin. I think we need to definitely recognize the, the, the reaction that European people and nations um, or leadership have. Uh, gravitated, how, how they have gravitated toward Ukrainian refugees in a much different context and, and manner uh, with welcoming arms. They are us. That's what they said. And there's this us and them paradigm that has ha- uh, very catastrophically um, distinguished white refugees from refugees of color. Uh, and, and I don't think that the spillover effect, or you can say, like, ha- the impact of Ukrainian uh, refugees in, in Europe will be the same as we have seen of, say, Syrian refugees or African refugees. Um, because of the color of the skin, I, I think it's, it's important that we say that out loud, because we need to start acknowledging that people are not treated differently. I work at the US Committee for Refugees and Immigrants and you know seeing the policy reform, uh, formation you know at, in, in as it happens um, just goes to show like me how a refugee from Afghanistan, by the way Afghanistan is a lot closer to Europe than, than uh, in the United States. Despite Afghan's, you know, uh, promise for a special immigrant visa status in the United States, they, Europe just did not want to have anything to do with them. This conflict is very much uh, ha, has very similar repercussions, but we have not, uh, sorry, Europe has not um, accepted immigrants the same way. Uh, your, your Ukrainian immigrants the same way as they did. So the spillover effect in terms of economic um, impact will be different. Yes, there will be a lot more social uh, spending, but there will be the transition will be much different. I think there might be a rise in populism, um, which is not just going to affect you know the the democratic movement, but also you know like how we. Move on from this uh, particular time. Um, I I I think you know the Baltic area. Uh, just look at East, East Berlin, even has um, been an unfortunate consequence uh, or stymied economically because of the sanctions that the United States and Europe have put on Russia and pro-Russian powers for you know since the beginning of time. Um, and so these things have been sort of happening for a very long time, uh, but just not in uh, shown in the media. So what we're seeing now is just kind of a focus um, for some particular reason as this particular moment in the Russo-Ukrainian war as being like especially unusual. This has been happening for a very long time, and these uh, nations, uh, have been struggling with the economic sanctions or the repercussions of economic sanctions for a very long time now.
0: Since you, you, you just introduced uh, about the sanctions, let, let's talk about the resolution process, a uh, resolution, in, 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 I, I have to put brackets on that. Um, there are negotiations that are going on in both parties and people don't seem to catch from it a lot of hope So I was wondering if we could discuss um, what is this negotiation process will look like and what is there to expect? Because in the end, uh, the more hours uh, we keep going on, uh, the the war keeps going on, people are dying. And until today, we don't necessarily have a very exact or at least a close to accurate death tool. That's why I'm even uh, reluctant to, um, to cite some. So we don't know how many people are dying, we just know people are dying, uh, infrastructures are, are going down. So what do you make of, um, of this negotiation process? Um,
2: well, it's... Uh, it, so the humanitarian corridors which have already been agreed on have not happened. Um, they. The Red Cross just announced that the evacuations uh, are, I think they said, of, um, let me check which cities, um, of of uh, Mariupol in uh, Volnokava. Um, I did not pronounce that last one correctly. Sorry about that. But, um, yeah, so I, I think um, it's always good to keep talking, um, even if there, the likelihood of something actually happening is not great. But I, I don't see any
1: real... Outcome from it. And also, it can also be what, like uh, the curbing of the conflict, Mm -hmm. which is expanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was hope last week, Mm there's, I mean, it's still going on. Dirty compromise Mm -hmm. where Zelensky would actually say, okay, take DNR, Mm -hmm. take LNR, just leave us alone, just like effing leave us alone. Mm Or it's gonna be a full blown yeah. conflict that involves already involving a lot of
2: agents. So the so I, I I agree with that and and I just also want to walk back something I just said. Um, it, there is there can be a drawback for talking with Russia because historically Putin has used peace talks to uh, resupply his troops and redeploy his troops, and it can mm-hmm. actually have a negative impact. So I think it it just needs obviously the ukrainian authorities know this it's not a secret <laughs> um so yeah.
1: yeah another thing is that the sanctions that are currently squeezing the mm-hmm. russians like basically no you know mm-hmm. ordinary everyday people mm-hmm. uh, the oligarchs too but but mm-hmm. less to less Much extent less, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, with you know the united states hope with hope that okay once they feel it the mm-hmm. russian people will actually demand the, what, what's, what's going mm. on. There is just, I can see it being that Putin will say, well, you see what the dirty West is doing to well, us? It's, he's already he saying, just did. well, he, there you he, go. He you just go. announced
2: that the sanctions are equivalent to an act of war there and that Ukrainian not, statehood is in the question because
1: of it. I'm not surprised. No. No. Yeah.
3: Economic sanctions to work. Uh, there needs to be, Russia has oil it's not going to work like every mm. country's if they stopped okay we're going to stop trading oil mm. then maybe the sanctions mm. might work but the us is not stopping oil we like people need to addicted heat their to homes oil. yes every country's like, addicted to oil and clean energy is not there yet mm. and that's also emits fossil fuels when you're extracting it mm. but also russia's not a democracy
1: no. like people
3: Yes, people might be against, Russians might be against Putin, some people, mm-hmm. but it's too scary to also voice your concern.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, people are getting arrested. Yeah, yeah.
2: They, they're arresting children um, yeah, they and, and elderly. Um, but sanctions are never intended to stop a war. They just they're they're intended them, yeah. to... They're, they're, be- they're behavioral change policies that are, if you telescope them enough, potentially they can change the calculus and a leader may decide to not do something. But there is
0: a fear for retaliation there as well, as the, the sanctions go. And And uh, an underlying discussion is, why not a hardcore uh, intervention? Nuclear war. Military, military <laughs> war We don't need a nuclear war. <laughs> That's no, why. The,
3: Ukraine wants a no-fly zone. Is that mm-hmm. where you're getting at?
0: Yeah, yeah. But, mm-hmm. but I, what I meant is... Um, there is just some background discussion that well, because it's a superpower, the other superpowers in the world do not want to engage militarily. If it was some small country somewhere doing this, I assure you at least the, how the discussion is going, the assurance is there would have been a, a united military action towards it and then and, and that. But anyway, what, what do you make of it, these sanctions and why all, all this dragging and around?
1: Um, I get, I th- actually, I wanted to talk about. Um, I mean, we can continue to talk about sanctions, but I'm no, not an expert. Ahead, but I want to talk about further. what Elizabeth mentioned about 10 minutes ago about the war being waged, you know, not just now, last week, mm-hmm. uh, and with the Crimea conflict, but it was actually wa- waging in people's heads. Mm-hmm. It was ba- waging in Russian people's heads uh, since uh, way, way before 2014 even. Because uh, yeah. Putin has been uh, cutting. Uh, off the liberal limbs mm-hmm. from the system to, you know, slowly squeezing just any type of opposition, any type of um, mm-hmm. liberal um, thought uh, and, or the, the narrative that kind of contradicts his. Um, and so what my um, sort of uh, hope is or concern actually is how long will it take us to uh, Re—I don't want to say re-educate, but uh, inspire people to uh, be more <laughs> uh, in, into critical thinking. Basically, re-learning. you know,
3: re-learning. Mm-hmm.
1: relearning. Thank you. Like after World War II, when you know, mm-hmm. when Nazi Germany, like there were lots of people who were just basically under the spell of the Nazi regime. How did they get? Re- how did they relearn? How did mm-hmm. they get into back into the society? And how did they? Um, avoid the, you know, being murdered for being base- associated with the regime. That's what that's what uh, my so, uh, Thought is right now.
2: Unfortunately, a lot didn't that's the unfortunate part and Completely different topic, but the German government was heavily staffed by Nazis all the way up through the 60s and 70s, but um, but in uh, you, you in Russia I, this is going on even, it's still going on now. Uh, mm-hmm. The parliament, Russian parliament, I think yesterday passed a law saying anyone who's opposed to the law, uh, to the war, is facing 15 years yeah. in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the two liberal uh, news stations remaining have now shut down. Um, uh, Eko- Muscovy has now sh- mm. been shut down for the first time in 30 years since the fall of the Soviets. Um, I told
1: my friend to get the shortwave radio because yeah. BBC mm-hmm. is still on shortwave mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. BBC is also mm-hmm. being shut down Nova Gazeta, mm-hmm. the new yeah. the new mm-hmm. newspaper that's the only yeah. one that basically was publishing mm-hmm. the, saying that there was a war they said we're going down yeah. like, we're, we're absolutely going down and
2: I think so yesterday I forget what the company's name is but there's an ISP provider an internet service provider in DC that handles roughly a quarter of the world's internet data um, and right after uh, Russia announced that they were going to shut down Facebook and Twitter in the country, the ISP announced they are shutting their data to Russia down, which I don't know the percentage-wise, but if they control a quarter of the world's internet, that's a significant uh, hit to the Russian uh, internet and connectivity. I think that's completely bad. I think that's a, a, a bad idea because specifically this.
1: Information. You, the
2: information. Russian people need information that's not state-led. That's not mm-hmm. state sanctioned and if you don't have that then you're only going to get a more isolated population and you're going to build a barrack state like north korea where the only information you're going to get is the is 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 thumb drives with movies flown over on balloons from south korea like like that's that that's not a good thing
3: and you can see the construction of ideology and how like common sense plays (laughs) like how grimsky says like there's this like societies build up this understanding of common sense, and this is what Russia is exactly doing in constructing its ideology without interference from the outside world.
0: Mm-hmm. We, do, we do have to uh, wrap up, I mean, not wrap up the discussion, because this will never end. We'll, we'll still continue, but at least for the moment, and then we go digest uh, for a different session. But I, I would like to... Then reflect on what's coming because when I mentioned the negotiations, that was a sign of hope. I'm I'm, I'm glad you said it. it's it's good as long as we keep talking, mm-hmm. right? It's a sign of hope. But then on the other hand, you also see that um, other efforts are taking place, like the, the economic sanctions, and then we do have um, the the big fish economically um, strong people also being targeted, so that the pressures come from everywhere and. But the question there is, how much do you think this is going to work? Because if I bring it to a table of non-scholars, a a bunch of machos talking, um, I'm I'm just just, uh, bringing you a different picture there, right? Uh, A group of machos talking, and when they're fighting, any intention to sensitize either one of them results in escalation. Of oh, that conflict, it's just a a a, a a a virtual perception I have in my in my head, because there is a, a there are underlining machismo issues going on, and whether it's not the, the two of them, but at least it's a scenario there, right? The more we say, "Oh no, please don't fight," I feel like more like I should. <laughs> it works. It works op- on the opposite direction. So now. How do we think this is going to play out there? We know the intention, but how do we envision that this is going to play? Because after all, even this conflict, people were not waiting for it.
4: I I want to say something there, Leo, because I think your um, example of machos fighting is really important here. First of all, we do have a lot of macho men in this this Mm -hmm. situation literally all men (laughs) fighting against each other you know um but you cannot say please stop fighting because the reason of the conflict is valid their emotions are on fleek (laughs) if we can say they are heightened and so you can't say stop fighting you have to actually try to desensitize them not sensitize them they are already hypersensitive and that is what has led them or driven them to not care about the emotional or even physical well-being of their enemy. Um, they have become so sensitive that they are dehumanizing the other. Um, and so if, I think if we can continue this uh, macho example, it would have to be validating both sides. Um Anton Fedyashin is an assistant professor at American University, and um, and he said that sanctions don't work um, because they are reactive. Um, so once a conflict has already started, you are by sanctioning you are adding fuel to the fire in a way, um, or disregarding the validity of the issues that are being that are, that are uh, being contended. And so what you need to do is try to find a solution, he says, that is equally unappealing to the uh, players uh, in conflict. So equally unappealing solution. You can't say, have Donetsk, have Luhansk uh, put in your puppet regime. That will not be an equally unappealing solution. solution russia would win temporarily but that only temporarily appeases um and then i think china um, and russia have a quite uh, strong brotherhood and it has been revealed that uh, china knew of russia's intention before the uh, olympic games and the fact that russia heeded you know listen obeyed china's order or request please, don't start your war until uh, the Olympics. I think that shows how much weight China's uh, input it would have. And I think if China decided to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with Russia, um, and perhaps in a, in a non... Um, uh, in, in, a, in a neutral space, not Belarus, because you can't have mediations um, done by a mediator that is uh, not neutral, that's just that just doesn't make any sense. Um, I think that would bring the environment, at least to the space uh, of neutrality and, you know, weight that Russia could appreciate. It's not European power telling them to calm down. It's not United States telling them they need to stop the war. It's China who shares a border with Russia saying, "Look, let's try something else that is not going to actually make any of us completely happy." I think that's the only way that this would this would end, um, at least to a stalemate. Not necessarily, you know, internationally declaring peace. Uh, But at least reaching a consensus um, like we did with Japan, you know, in the books, technically, we're still at war uh, with a lot of the countries we go. we, We actually bombed, but we are at peace because we have reached a mutually unappealing condition
0: to stop war. Please jump in. I gotta say, <laughs> and
1: based on uh, President Zelensky's speech um, from his bunker yesterday, mm-hmm. he is m- much better macho than Putin because yeah. he does not dehumanize Putin. Yeah. He 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 said, "Sit with me. I'm I'm don't bite." Mm-hmm. Like while Putin, in his freaking KGB ways, he still does yeah. not acknowledge that mm-hmm. even Zelensky is a human being. So that like I'm I'm very I'm the size there one side is more dehumanizing than the other that is not Mm -hmm. that is not correct as we say in Ghana that's just not acceptable Mm -hmm. to me
3: well do y'all think that um the I guess the U.S. administration stating that this is a war crime the ICC going to the ICC is gonna make this uh conflict worse
2: that's actually really interesting because the U.S. clawed that back um, so the uh, specifically with the incident at the Zaporizhzhda um, power plant, which, God, I was going to go to sleep, and then all of a sudden I see that <laughs> tanks are firing at a nuclear power plant, and I was like, okay, I guess I'm not sleeping tonight. Um, but uh, but the U- uh, U.S. Embassy in Kiev put out a statement saying this is a war crime, and then the next day, yesterday, the uh, U.S. State Department ordered all embassies to if they have retweeted re- retweeted it, to unretweet it and to not um, retweet it again, um, and so it's very interesting. I I think um, I I don't think it alone will make that much of a difference to mm-hmm. Russia uh, either either st- uh, forcing them to stop or making it worse because that's just. You had a question earlier about the Security Council and everything. Yeah. It's all as much as I love the international community, it's all toothless. Um, and interna- like the ICC, we saw this with the we, we saw this with the um, ICTY in Yugoslavia. Uh, it took literally it, the war ended in '94. The tribunal just stopped two years, ag- like three years ago. Um, and grand- while there were a few high-profile cases, this was set up in that territory. The ICC has no real sway over Putin unless he leaves the country, and I don't see him leaving Russia anytime soon. Mm. Yeah. Well, Can I have please. one more thought, course, uh, which I've course.
1: been discussing and marinating in uh, again, again, <laughs> with the war in people's heads. Uh, I I believe, and and some of my friends in Kazakhstan and Russia agree. It, Putin has to be neutralized mm-hmm. or, or taken down from within. Yeah. There is no, like, from within. Mm. I don't know who that will be. I mean, it could be one of his cronies who will be in light, you know, who will be <laughs> like, you know, this guy was kind of like Khrushchev, who yeah. basically denounced mm-hmm. Stalin. Like, same sort of yeah. situation. Or, you know, whacked by Shoigu or whoever, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. one of his ministers. Like, literally, like, it has... it. It cannot. It cannot just continue. So
2: I actually don't. As so on that point, I actually don't agree that even China would be able to get him to step down. Because in my view, Putin has stepped so far out that the only. So if Russia. So if he decides to back down, someone will. He, he will be taken out of power and then de facto eliminated in some way. If he doesn't step down, if he doesn't pull out of Ukraine and, and he keeps this going, that I think is the only path for him to. Remain in power. Um, yeah,
0: well, we can go with with the question then. Why is the international um, community not being effective?
2: Well, in so sense. it had in sanctions it has, but the you the UN. UNSC- don't have the track record. Yeah, yeah, no, we don't. <laughs> but but but
1: that, that's, but, a, that's well, enough of the answer. answer. Yeah. for <laughs> everyday people, the sanctions.
3: Sorry, what? The sanctions affect people like oh, oh, yeah, It doesn't it affects, affect governments. Yeah, and, I mean, we've yeah. seen governments can go on war and war, yeah. even if sanctions mm-hmm. exist. Yeah, as yeah. soon as, soon as yeah. the
2: Napoleonic War showed that a modern state could be mobilized for war, um, it really... It compl- and the fact that the sanctions are... Even the sanctions that are directly targeted at the oligarchs, they're only getting um, a, a tiny fraction of the wealth. Um, like a yacht worth $100 million that means nothing to a, a billionaire. <laughs> like no. re, uh, no, the, the only thing it would mean potentially is a loss of of um uh um. Oh, what's the term? I'm drawing a blank. Um, of of liquid capital. Um, it's something that they can sell immediately and have cash on hand. That that that, in my opinion, is the only real impact the sanctions will well, have on the oligarchs. It's known
3: that their assets are in Cyprus, yeah. the Virgin Islands, Panama, yeah, and. Like I said before, we were talking about mm-hmm. this before this yeah. discussion, and Virgin Island is like when UK put sanctions, the Virgin Islands said, "Okay, we're putting sanctions as well." Mm-hmm. However, their assets are everywhere, oh, and yeah. recovering all of these assets it is will take forever.
2: I mean, impressive. as satisfying as crypto, it, too. yeah, as yeah. satisfying as it is to see uh, these yachts be impounded by various governments and how how voyeuristic we are when the when the u.s sends a task force after after some oligarchs yacht that really doesn't make any difference It's has got 10 it, more yachts. it's all theater um well I, I will have to let you go
0: <laughs> thank you thank you for having thank us Leo. this was really you. fun we can
1: we can go on up
0: there <laughs> no I will, then for that for that for that oh come again no, no, I oh. just said thank you. Of course, of course. Uh, you're welcome. And we can reconvene two weeks from now when mm-hmm. we have followed um, mm-hmm. all the oh. development. Of, uh, and then when we have a more clear uh, Dev tool and the impact on the sanctions, and and uh, as we speak, news are coming in. Uh, but so, if you're okay, we can reconvene it two weeks from now Definitely. as we follow the news. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you, Leo. Thank you all. Thank you. So thank, you. thank you. Be safe. Thank you so much. Bye, Liz. Oh, Liz. yeah.
2: Yes. Right, ahead, right. um, I just wanted to say I also went to AU, but for undergrad. Oh, cool. it's, it's all connected. It. It. We were all connected. All connected. That's it. <laughs> yes, we are. The whole world is. Oh, f- more so more than, than we know. <laughs>